Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 82. Uh, this week, it's myself, uh, Michael, and Mark. And this week, we have a guest, a security MVP, uh, Trules, who's here to talk to us about all things related to sort of security strategy, which I have no doubt Mark and Trules will have a, a fun time. But before we get to our guest, uh, let's take a little lap around the news. Uh, Mark, why don't you kick things off? So the big news uh, from my side is that the Zero Trust Commandments which are now a standard, have been released. Um, and so what this is, is it's actually a combination of the previous publication on the Zero Trust Commandments, as well as the Open Group's um, core principles for Zero Trust, and put together into a single guiding document and updated, refined, organized, cleaned up a little bit. And um, and so that, this is a pretty big deal that we now have our first standard uh, for Zero Trust, um, which I'm uh, extremely excited about. You know, just just for a little bit of context, I'm going to do a mini speech here. When I think about what these things are, just to sort of put them in perspective, in the old days of uh, of security, there was a lot of people had a belief somewhere along the lines of not exactly if it doesn't have anything to do with the network perimeter, it's it's crap. So there was this sort of uh, this deep, deep faith in the network perimeter keeping us safe. And, you know, whether it was said out loud or it was just implied and understood. And so, you know, what happened was, you know, what, what, I, what I see Zero Trust as and, you know, the open group Microsoft and many others is that essentially, essentially what's happening is when you kind of tear down that wall and that mindset of the perimeter can keep us safe. That's zero trust. That's okay. Let's go ahead and reinvent security the way we should have in the first place, minus this one broken, flawed assumption that we can somehow keep a network and everything on it safe. And so it really sort of opened up the aperture, which was a good thing, but it also required us to sort of, you know, the first thing you need to do is you need to bound that world because. You know, security isn't an infinite thing. It doesn't do everything magically, right? And so you need to have some rules that kind of define what this new definition, this new scope of security actually is and does. And so that's what we tried to do with the commandments and sort of that's, that's one of the reasons why we made that the, uh, the, you know, one of the first standards that we pushed through is to get that clear definition. And these, these, these aren't everything to do with security, right? There's going to be a lot more to come. There's, you know, guiding principles for architects of all Type security and otherwise, and then there's a reference model coming and all that. But what what these do, these commandments do, is all of the things that elevate up to a must or a shall statement. The things that are absolute hardcore worthwhile boundaries to set. You know, which of course took a whole lot of thought and debate and uh, and consideration and you know feedback from the first round. And of course, we're always open for more feedback. But these are the things that basically help provide that new kind of hard boundary of clarity, which is this is what security does. If you aren't doing this, or if you're doing something that violates this, you're doing it wrong. And so that's really what these commandments are. Really proud of this work, really looking forward to uh, seeing people use them, getting feedback on them, you know, continuously improving them as needed. Yeah, that's that's the big news there. And so um, I'll put a link in the show notes for the commandments themselves, as well as uh, a post I put on with some of my co- a commentary on it as well on LinkedIn. There's a couple of news items. Uh, the first one is uh, around TLS. So the, uh, we've now updated the default TLS policy for Azure Application Gateway. 
Uh, if you're not familiar, there are different uh, predefined policies uh, that start with like app gateway SSL policy. I wish they changed that to TLS, but anyway. Yeah, so it's like an app gateway SSL policy followed by a date, like a year, month date. Um, the latest default policy is uh, 2022.01.01. And uh, the mini- minimum protocol policy is now TLS 1.2. And enables also TLS 1.3 as well. And also, we've uh, really restricted the Cypher suites um, to some of the sort of more modern versions, like more use of Galois counter mode, for example. And some of the ones that use Cypher blockchaining are still using, you know, SHA 384 or uh, an AES 256 and so on. And one that was in there for a long time, and I'm glad to see that it was gone. It was there really for backward compatibility with some really, really old devices, was one that was using triple DES. Um, so I'm glad to see that that one has now finally fallen out of favor. The second item is in public preview, uh, firmware analysis in Defender for IoT. This is actually pretty cool. I didn't even know we could even do this. We can actually take a binary firmware image from an IoT device and conduct uh, automated analysis looking for potential security vulnerabilities and weaknesses. This is actually really, really cool. I'm, I think this is Pretty amazing to see that we can do this stuff. So, you know, Mark one up for the uh, the, the Defender team. Uh, absolutely, I love I love that feature. The uh, I've been waiting for a little while because I was actually you know uh, part of managing the the Defender for IoT business for a short period of time, and you know I saw the Refirm Lab acquisition. I'm like, ooh, I can't wait for engineering to bring this into the product because that's going to be awesome and start getting us proactive. Now we have the news out of the way. Uh, let's th- turn our attention to our guest. Uh, this week we have Truls, who's a security MVP from Norway, who's here to talk to us about a blog post that he wrote uh, earlier in the year called Field Notes on S- Security Strategy. And we can obviously take it any direction we want. Truls, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, would you like to take a moment and introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, so as mentioned, my name is uh, Truls. Uh, I'm a Microsoft MVP based out of Oslo, Norway. On my day-to-day, I work as a security architect slash engineer slash everything that needs to be done. I work in a company called Soprasteria in a security operations center. So it's mainly like MSSP-focused, the work that I do. Uh, Focus on security monitoring, automation, and security tooling. And given the MVP status, it's mostly in the Microsoft stack. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm very passionate about security monitoring strategy and uh, security strategy. And that's why I wrote the blog post. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading your post. This is uh, not just the memes and the choice of the memes, but uh, you know, very much enjoy the, the line of thinking. Do you want to maybe take a moment and sort of talk a little bit about the post and sort of what led you to write it and sort of the kind of key themes that you're, you're emphasizing there? Yeah, sure. So... Uh, to start with, I think the idea for the post was born with a lot of the, when you go around viewing different deployments, and this is mainly uh, CM deployments uh, of Sentinel, uh, you see a lot of people, I think uh, you said before, chasing a silver bullet where it's, oh, we need every data connector, we need every single point of, of data, uh, and we need all of the uh, analytic rules, the default templates enabled, and you'll get this situation where a lot of people that work in security monitoring will be familiar with this, where you have uh, what we define as alert fatigue, where you can only handle meaningfully like 50 alerts a day and you get 200 uh, every hour. And so you're going to miss a lot of important alerts and you're just skating by on pure luck, basically. We definitely see that a lot, um, especially in anything to do with security operations. 
Um, I, I, I tend to call that one the um, the uh, collection is not detection dynamic. It's just that you need to be ruth. I call it ruthless prioritization. Not only are, are human minds, you know, are tuned towards scarcity and gathering and pack rat, kind of being a pack rat to bring more stuff in. You know, that's sort of a natural human thing. But um, especially in security, when logs weren't turned on, you know, in the pre-cloud days and all sorts of stuff, like we crave more information, more data. But there's a limit to that. You know, at some point, you know, there's too many books in the library, and you need a librarian to curate it. So yeah, like we see the exact same stuff. Uh, I think touching on that point, it's interesting in a sense that a lot of people still have this, uh, I guess, kind of backwards old school mentality of, oh, we need the firewall and the NetFlow logs. Uh, we need all of these uh, in the CM, we need detection on it. But given today's state of the infrastructure and the perimeters you work with, the network is no longer the main perimeter for most companies. It's identities. So it doesn't make any sense to put that big of an emphasis on the same kind of logs that we used to emphasize like 10, 15 years ago. I think that's uh, another thing that really bothered me was that we would see uh, a lot of focus on these infrastructure heavy logs and not as much focus on just getting a good value first and foremost out of the, the identity based logs. So that was also like a big motivator for getting the thoughts out of my head and onto the, the page to sort of like explain where I was at uh, with that. Yeah, it's it's almost I don't know the the analogy that that pops into my mind is like we used to have one mine with gold in it, and so we basically set up a perimeter around it and defended it. Well, we found gold everywhere, you know, where all the organizations' data and valuable assets are, and they're everywhere else. And why do we still have all of our guards around the mine when all the stuff is out there? Um, that's not the right intercept point. I've used to talk about this where. Uh, I visualize an organization in the olden days, or the olden days uh, makes me feel old, but uh, it's like a village with uh, a fence around it. And you have like a, the firewall where all the traffic goes in and out. It's like the port and you have a guard there. Uh, and some people might have guards posted on the fence. Uh, I think there's an old like adage or something where they say, if you build 15 meter tall walls, you're just opening a market for 16 meter tall ladders. But the idea is that before security monitoring, if you even had uh, security monitoring, the logs you would be gathering were like firewall ingress and egress logs because that made sense, right? It's the it's the shaft down to the gold mine, as you said. So now that we moved away from that and people can access via like proxies and stuff like that uh, and SharePoint on their phones and uh, you can work from home office, you can work from, uh, I don't know, uh, Bermuda if you wanted to, right? And still have like decent access to things like mail and SharePoint and stuff. So it's it doesn't make sense. So I guess in that sense, the point I was also trying to make in a post is that not all log sources are uh, created equal because you need to prioritize them. And people put too much emphasis on gathering all the logs and then enabling uh, default detections on those logs. And that's enough. But I think that's not the right way to work uh, when you're uh, designing like a security strategy for how you want to monitor your stuff. The way I look at it is you just have to look at it from an outcome basis. like, And we have to ask the question that, quite often wasn't asked 
um, at the beginning of security operations as it sort of was emerging as sort of uh, an offshoot of IT operations or of network operations or wherever it happened to originate within an organization. And we have to ask, why are we doing this? What is the purpose? What is the outcome? And not just the technical outcome, like, oh, we have to handle these alerts. Why? You know, kind of do that, uh, what do they call it, the five whys or whatever, that <laughs> Ishikawa diagram or something. Sorry, I was part of a Six Sigma project a long time ago when I picked up some terminology. Um, but like, what is the outcome? What are we actually trying to do? And it's, you're trying to protect the business from attackers having access to your stuff. And that's a better North Star than we got to take care of these alerts, right? Because that then guides you to, okay, what kind of alerts do we need to look at? Because we, like you said, we have 200 an hour, we can handle 50 a day, you know, uh, which ones do we investigate? Which ones are worth it? Because it's all about that, you know, ruthlessly prioritize. And, you know, what do we need to do that's the most likely to cause damage to the business to, you know, to be an attacker that has access to the goodies. It's, it's uh, really interesting because I've, I've read some of your posts on the topics as well, especially relating to uh, when you talk about security tooling uh, and talking about mm-hmm. what security tool do we need to bring in to solve this issue, which is not the right question, as you've pointed out. So it's, I think it's uh, interesting to hear your thoughts on the, the things I've been sort of like churning around in my brain for a while, because it's, as I mentioned at the end of the blog post, it's what I'm writing isn't gospel. It's not like 100% correct for everyone. So you need to, the biggest thing you need to take away from it is that you should question your strategy and you should uh, create your own strategy. You can't follow one-on-one guides on how to set up security monitoring because it's not going to be like, it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. good example of that is... uh, we have two different customers. One of the customers, they do uh, RDP nesting as like mm-hmm. a normal thing for them. So they uh, they RDP into one server and they RDP from that server onto another server. Now, for most of our customers, this would be a sign of someone is trying to pivot from one server to another. And this is a shady business. Uh, but for this particular customer, this is a normal usage pattern. So a detection that shows RDP nesting would be not very good for that customer because it would be like almost yep. only false positives. So we need to take a step back and do like a proper use case design for uh, every single customer, every single thing you want to monitor. And as you mentioned uh, previously, that it's not about necessarily uh, starting with like tooling and stuff like that, but it's about finding the North Star. Like, what are the things that I want to protect? Like, what is most important? And then also uh, looking at uh, what kind of business am I in? Uh, what type of threat actors will try to target me? What are the most likely scenarios based on those threat actors? What are the most likely scenarios based on the, the users that I have and the level of security knowledge in, in the company as a whole? So it's it's more to do with knowing yourself and then designing the security strategy on that basis instead of uh, yeah just working from tooling. Yeah, I, I love that theme. Like I actually was uh, helping out with a new unified uh, offering, basically a repeatable engagement that we do, the Microsoft Unified Support, formerly Premier, for those that have been around as long as I have. You know, it's on Sentinel adoption, and and you know, essentially helping people. You know, it started off as a migration thing, but we decided to to reframe it as an adoption one because it's like we're not just going to go ahead and rerun a rule and keep 
and take whatever you know Splunk or ArcSight or whatever queries that you've got. You know, it's let's make sure there's use cases in there. Let's make sure we're thinking through that because you know you have to be able to express those risks in a way that you know you can technically implement across different platforms. Because like one of the things that we we see a lot of folks that have never worked with an XGR, for example, there's so many common attacks that you can detect that pretty much look the same everywhere. And that's sort of your basis. That's your baseline. But when you get into, okay, once you have those in place, what are you looking for in sort of a, a custom query uh, based tool like a, a Sentinel or, or what have you that you know allows you to do custom scenarios and use cases? You know, one, you got to be thinking in terms of use cases so you can actually have a common language, right? Because an XGR doesn't work in the same exact query way that a SIM does. So you need a common language across those, but you need to be able to say, which ones do we have covered here so we don't end up writing a bunch of duplicate queries so that the, the time and effort that we spend to, to the point you were making is actually on, hey, this is unique to our organization, so this would always be a false positive, but... We also do this, and if the attackers go with the standard thing, that's going to stick out like a sore thumb if we're looking for it, right? So, you know, how do we write use cases that are custom tailored to our environment for things that the adversary could not know or would not know, and they're going to basically just, you know, find themselves going standing out in the middle of a main street, going, oh, I thought it was in an alley, and so yeah, completely, completely agree with that, and I, I love the the sort of starting with knowing your infrastructure, you know, as well as the threats and all these other things, because, you know, you're defending the environment you've got. Yeah, I think it's, as you said, the the rootless prioritization thing. I think it goes for when you're setting up uh, your CM and integrating with NextCR as well. It's, it's about prioritizing after you sort of like figured out, okay, what's the most important parts of this? So let's say, ah, I need to monitor my sign-in logs, my audit logs, my Azure activity logs, just as an example. You've identified what you want to protect and then you've you identify the log sources you would need and then you can start working on seeing like what your usage patterns in those logs are what's the baseline and start working on as you said the use cases because i think one thing that a lot of people do wrong and not just enabling templates and then just saying oh now we have detection for this thing uh, but just because you have an alert doesn't mean you're being a good like SOC or MSSP or security team just because you surfaced an alert. If most of the alerts you get are false positives, you're doing a very bad job, in my opinion. Yes. Because it's an alert isn't necessarily actionable. So it needs to have some level of what do I do when this alert surfaces? What what's the point of making this alert surface? So we need need to have a reason for it, at least in my mind. So that's where the use case development comes into play, where you would say, oh, we, we want to look for these kind of patterns, and why do we need to look for them? Okay, this is the reason. And then uh, what do we do once this emerges? So a bad use case would be like password spraying uh, against Azure AD identity, because we have multi-factor enabled, right? Uh, should have, at least. Uh, and then I think... Uh, what do you do if you get an alert someone's trying to brute force? Well, uh, I can maybe check that this user hasn't been a part of any leaks, but that's like the extent of what I can do. Unless there's someone actually gaining access, I can't do anything about that. So it's it's 
pointless to have as an actionable alert. Maybe you want it as an informational alert to see what's going on, but it's it's very important that your use cases and the alerts you generate, no matter where it's at, if it's the CM or the XDR, they need to be actionable. At least in my mind, that's a very important part of of a good like security monitoring strategy. Yeah, 100% agree. Like the, a couple of things that we emphasize um, in our workshops that you know, I do a lot of development on is it's got to be incident centric, not alert centric, right? So that you're looking at this through the lens of not just, hey, this thing came up and it's a password spray or whatever it happens to be, which was hopefully blocked as, as you point out. But, you know, this thing came up. Is it part of something else? Because the adversary may trip four alarms in the process of stumbling through the house trying to find the safe, right? And so you got to be thinking of it holistically. And is this, you know, is this one snapshot of, uh, of the unicorn's tail something that we need to correlate to, you know, the horn and the hoofs and, and everything else that we've got for sensors? And so having that incident-centric mindset we found is, is definitely super important. And then, you know, the other thing that, that you reminded me of is the other benefit of use cases is if you can express this in a simple use case, here's the threat, this, that, and the other, you can then look and say, hey, is this something we already prevented? Is this something we could prevent? Because the last thing you want to be doing is have your SOC chase down 100 incidents a month that you could have just blocked with MFA, right? Like the whole point of the SOC is to apply those that precious resource of those few humans that you're able to to get and train and spend time on and whose brains burn out if you give them too much stuff, right? Like, let's make sure we're protecting them against garbage. Let's not give them a false positive. Let's not give them a something we could have blocked. Let's, let's not give them a garbage alert when we could give them a high-quality actionable alert because you have a very finite set of people at the end of the line and you need to clean up that pipeline and filter out the garbage before it gets to the point where you actually need a human to to pull out a weapon and do something. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. I I'm, it's funny you mention it because that's I'm working on a presentation and a blog post right now about that exact topic about security automation because it's one thing is the the strategy behind it, right, and the use case development and the, the data you you ingest, which is like I guess it's a very big part of it, but at the same time, as you said, some you need some alerts to be like informational low to paint like the part of the picture of the unicorn you're chasing. So you need some way at least uh, to correlate that data. And sometimes if a security analyst has to every single time go into virus total and uh, copy and paste something, they have to do like cross-reference searches. They have to do uh, enrichment that could be done automatically it's uh yeah it's it's a waste of time and so security automation as well plays a big part in i think fighting against uh, alert fatigue and just making sure that as you said the precious finite minutes of human brain power can be used to actually do something that requires human brain power and isn't just something where you sit and do the exact same thing just copy and paste and do repeatable tasks that could be automated so that's a very good point it kind of calls up the power of uh, the NIST cybersecurity framework, you know, the life cycle of identify, protect, detect, respond, recover, and soon to be governed if, if they accept the proposals of the, the V2, that's the draft that's out. And I mean, honestly, I think 
the, ori- the original point of the NIST one was because we had a very prevention-centric mindset in the industry at the time, was to sort of open up the life cycle so people were thinking holistically, including the back end of it, respond, recover. But I feel like the pendulum has swung over, um, especially for folks that work in security operations, and they're only thinking in terms of respond and recover. And it's like, y'all, you need to be talking to your architect and, and engineering and operations counterparts you know, in IT and in security. Because the last thing you want to be doing is chasing the same incident that could have been prevented a hundred times over. So it's sort of like, you know, it's a, it's a reminder, but now in the other direction. Yeah, exactly. So tools, do you, you know, when you're sort of talking to customers, do many of them use like a you know, sort of an industry standard set of frameworks or controls? So for example, uh, one thing that we use a lot is NIST SP800-53, SP a whole set of different controls, and they're used. So, in the federal government in the U.S., they're used for things like um, you know directing FedRAMP, FedRAMP low, medium, and high. So, they'll take those actual controls and then sort of codify them for uh, moving federal solutions to the cloud. Do you sort of, when you're talking to customers, do you come across these kinds of frameworks, or are sort of are people kind of winging it themselves? Uh, I think it depends a lot of what kind of industry you're in. Uh, a lot of uh, our customers are in regulated industries, so they will use uh, industry-specific yeah, standards. We see a lot of ISO, 20, I think it's 27001. Uh, we see NIST, obviously. Uh, we see, so usually we are mostly Azure-based uh, for our detection part, so it's mostly like Defender for Cloud. Uh, they've deployed a NIST standard. Uh, but I think also most people are using the uh, Microsoft-like uh, built-in uh, cloud controls, uh, which are pretty good. So I, th- I think that's about the extent of what we see. Um, also, Sys, obviously, like the, the different baselines for VMs and stuff. But yeah, it's it depends. Uh, Center for Internet Security, CIS, I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting you should bring up the Azure, Azure Control. So by that, I assume you mean the Azure Security Bench. Oh, actually, it's now the Microsoft Security Benchmark, right, Mark? Um, Microsoft Cloud Security Benchmark, I think, is the, the official new name. So is that is that commonly used as well? Because one of the things I, I do like about that is that it does map to other controls like NIST SPA 100-53. Yeah, that's, that's very commonly used. And I think as a focus for us as well, it's looking at, I think... A lot of people in the security industry, uh, like security people, we are very we like numbers, uh, which is why, like, I made a point about we're very binary. If things are secure or not secure, that's just the two def- default options we have, which is, I guess, historically why we've been bad at communicating business value. But uh, yeah, the the secure scores, like the identity secure score and the Defender for Cloud secure score, uh, are very good. Like ways to get your platform engineering team or your engineers and architects to sort of like uh, design around making that score better because that's something that you can put as like a key performance index like making the secure uh, score better so it's i think that fact that you can integrate them with like a scorecard is very like intriguing to people and they want to work to get that score to be good because it's something that the customer can easily like it's very uh, easily like something you can project onto a customer-facing dashboard. And so they can see the score and they can ask, why hasn't the score improved? Why are we still at 89%? So that's, I think that's a very good thing. I think a lot of people are working just on improving that score. I, look, I love that. Look, I'm not going to lie, I, I love that. But I love that with a grain of salt. 
I love the idea of having a you know a number that people can aim for and, and see to improve. But I've also seen customers spend a lot of time trying to improve that score for something that actually has very little return. So they're willing to spend a lot of money to raise that that score, but what they're really doing isn't really improving their security posture that much. Um, look, I'm not going to say that's something that I see all the time, but I have seen it happen. Like just just in the, the quest for you know for increasing a number regardless. So my only concern there is, hey, if you're going to focus on increasing that score, then make sure it's the stuff that actually matters you know, for your environment. Like One of the things I've seen is because they're, and this is actually going to one of the points you made in the article, is there's sort of like almost a binary view, which you know, for people that grew up in the technology world isn't particularly surprising because there are t- truths and absolutes in the technology world that it will always execute in the exact same way because that's what the code says, right? Um, but the interesting thing is like, you know, the risk of the organization itself, you know, at the very top is dealing with a very, very complicated world where economic things could change and, and weather and all these other kind of risk factors to the organization. You know, one of which is, you know, cybersecurity risk is, is a business risk. And you've got to sort of translate that sort of fuzziness and probability world down into this sort of, you know, technical absolute thing. And it's, it's always sort of interesting to see that. And, you know, and I think what you're seeing, Michael, on my, my perspective is probably just that, you know, people recognize that, Hey, we need to go ahead and do a bunch of things. Great. But then they apply the old mindset of sort of a literal binary do everything. Um, and it, and it has to be a hundred percent correct. And, you know, it's probably because they set the expectations poorly, you know, to the board or the business leaders that, Hey, listen, if we get this score, we're good. Well, that's not right. It's actually this score is a good indicator for us, but it should be considered along with four or five others. And we're constantly looking at what the most important risk is, which, of course, we asked you three months ago, we hope, you know, hopefully that they're actually understanding what's important to the business. And so, I don't know, I feel like it's that same old kind of technical gremlin uh, mindset, you know, rearing its head again to just sort of go back to the absolutes and binaries. I I think the point about just getting someone to go along with security because it's a business expense so you need to communicate it as something that's actually beneficial to the business and then obviously as well with the score it's i think it's a good tool where if you need to actually get some traction i think you can use like these scores easily to get some sort of momentum on your security work but again uh, very important it's to sometimes you might get like an eight percent increase for doing something that will have no impact on in your environment and so do you do that uh, just to make the number go up or do you prioritize elsewhere so i think that's that's the trap uh, you can fall into and that's where other standards come into play and actually knowing your environment so i think i think a mix if you're having trouble like getting traction, I think the score is a good startup. But as you evolve, you should uh, maybe look away from the score and look at like what's business critical to you. Sort of like the training wheels to get you started on the bike, but at some point you need to take them off and, and ride the bike itself. Yeah, like get you started uh, moving, and then once you start like rolling, it's it's easier to just do it uh, based on like more complex things. Yeah. I got um, one, actually two kind of last questions I wanted to, to ask before we kind of get into the final question. One, I was kind of curious how many organizations you run into are actually using kind of a use case based approach. And then the other is I'd love to get your comments on the uh, uh, cyclical or iterative approach that you recommend. 
Yeah, so I think a lot of people, at least the organizations we work with, are quite familiar with use case-based uh, like approaches to at least the security monitoring. Uh, we do a sort of, uh, how would you call it, uh, like a co-managed uh, CM solution. So their security team and our security team can work together. And so we have uh, like a process where we can, they can suggest like, oh, this is something that's important to us to monitor. And then we work together to develop the use case. So I think uh, it's something we see among quite many of, of our, uh, of the customers we work with, but uh, outside of like security monitoring, it's uh, not my field of expertise. So I couldn't say a hundred percent. As for the cyclical approach, I think that's a, one thing that we uh, forget and a point that is very like closely related to when you're talking about security tooling i think we are very good at seeing the new shiny and running after it and oh this is going to help us protect against this thing instead of looking at our existing tool stack or the strategies and the designs we already have in place and going over it and seeing if we could do something better so my idea with like suggesting a cyclical approach was that once you go through protecting your identities, as an example, once you've enabled security controls that make sense to your organization, you have enabled monitoring and detection that makes sense to your organization, you shouldn't stop at that. You should go back maybe a month later, three months later, whatever makes sense in what you can fit in and look, am I still covering all my bases? Are there new options? Are there any new developments in the tools I already have that I can use to improve my security posture? And then do that continuously, like put it into a system instead of, okay, now this is enabled, this is set up, now it's going to work. And look, there's the next tool, I'm going to move over to that. Because then you'll end up with a lot of tools, decent security posture that will degrade over time because you're not actually maintaining it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of continuous improvement because I think it addresses a couple of problems that are very prevalent in uh, in security, which is, you know, that sort of, hey, we got the check mark, we're done. That sort of the dark side of checklist um, thinking, because there are a lot of benefits to checklist thinking, but there is a dark side of, hey, it's done, we don't ever have to go back and look at it. You know, we finished our 853, so therefore we're compliant, we're done, right? <laughs> so the continuous improvement helps break that, but it also helps break sort of the fear of perfection, like that we have to get this thing perfect the first time out. And then you spend all the time in the lab kind of doing the thing and you don't actually put it out there and try it and learn on it and, and iteratively and cyclically improve. Um, so I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of that continuous improvement type of uh, or growth mindset, some call it. All right. So now the time to sort of wrap this episode up. So tools, as someone who listens to the podcast, you're probably well aware that we, we have one little question for you at the end, which is if you had just one final thought to leave our listeners with, uh, what would it be? I think it sort of boils down to my mindset when it comes to like everything in security and everything in IT uh, is to keep it uh, simple. I used to say, or something I learned in the army is keep it simple, stupid, because you need to remind yourself, don't do things in large batches. It's easier to just do it in small batches, keep building on it. And yeah, just keep it as simple as you can. That way it's way easier to get things done. All right, so let's bring this episode to an end. Uh, Tools, thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, it was fun listening to you and Mark just pontificate. And to all our listeners out there, thanks so much for listening. We hope you found this episode of interest. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.
Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license.